Tommaso. So this afternoon, we'll begin the first in a series of meditations for the cultivation of the four immeasurables. Well, there is a sequence to these four, as I think is a very meaningful sequence, beginning with loving-kindness and proceeding on through equanimity. And we'll begin the loving-kindness practice today by focusing in a very classic fashion, following the teachings of the Buddha of initially focusing on loving-kindness for oneself. Uh, the Buddha said, as you might recall, one who loves himself will never harm another. And so this suggests a certain degree of wisdom in one's loving-kindness, that it's not just self-cherishing or self-centeredness, but really something much deeper, something reality-based. And so we'll start there, we'll extend outwards. Uh, but this is not just a theme, this loving-kindness for oneself is not simply a theme of, let's say, the Theravada tradition or of the Pali Canon. It's really in the spirit of Buddhism as a whole. Uh, you may, might recall in the first chapter of Shantideva's classic text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, you might recall, he says, if you don't reflect upon the benefits of bodhicitta for yourself, how will you ever think about developing bodhicitta for anybody else, right? So there are two elements here. And I remember having a conversation about this with His Holiness many years ago, but it's really classic Buddhism. But I'm speaking now from the Tibetan tradition, the Indo-Tibetan tradition, uh, and that is in Tibetan, Randun and Zhendun. And Randun is one's, one's own interests, one's own interests. Now, in saying that, it's not referring to selfishness at all. And so if, we, if, if you want a little bit picture of Mahayana Buddhism, you'll recall the, the three kayas, the three embodiments, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nimanakaya, right? Dharmakaya is simply the enlightened mind of a Buddha. And the enlightened mind of the Buddha is the fulfillment, the perfection of your own interest. That is, everything you could possibly want for yourself is realized in Buddha mind. There's nothing beyond that. You'll not be an unhappy customer. If you achieve Buddhahood and you're still, still dissatisfied, then come back and we'll have a talk. All right? <laughs> Uh, but, there, but you can see, this is the fulfillment of randu, or in, in Sanskrit, svaartha. It's the fulfillment of your own interests. So it's legitimate. You want to find happiness. You'd like to be free of suffering. You, would, you, would, you aspire for something. That's fine. That is not absolutely not to be snuffed out, right? And so there it is. There's the fulfillment of your own interests. But then we have the rupakaya, this very rarefied, very sublime manifestation of the Buddha, evident, engageable only for Arya Bodhisattvas and other Buddhas. So that manifestation, and then the much more common, more readily accessible manifestations of a Buddha as the myriad forms of Nirmanakaya. And so these are the forms. We have the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya. The, the Rupakaya being the form embodiments, namely that of the Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya. And these are expressions. These are displays, effulgences of Buddha mind and they are the perfection of para-artha, para-artha, and that is others' interests, others' interests, all right? And so these, both of these find their perfection in perfect enlightenment, but they're complementary, they're really of a piece, right? But they're not in competition. So what are you striving for, your interests or everybody's interests? Well, no, don't separate it like that. These two are really embedded with each other, they're completely integrated, and so to start out in the cultivation of loving-kindness by focusing on one's own interests is utterly legitimate, completely legitimate, whether you're following a Shravagayana path to your own liberation, the Bodhisattva path, the Vajrayana, Dzogchen, wherever you are, these two are perfectly fine. 
Okay? So I want to embrace that. It's very important that we don't think that, oh, well, I'm, but I want to follow the Mahayana path, so I should not be cultivating loving kindness by myself. We had a long discussion about this theme uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1990, and so I'm passing on his words of wisdom here. It is simply not at all a sectarian issue, and it's really good dharma. Okay? So we'll have one session. I'm not going to have the timer here because it might be 26 minutes, it might be 28 minutes, and I don't want to be crunched uh, for time. Okay? So this, the particular format of this meditation is something that I've, the, the format I've created, the content is entirely traditional. So, so I think you can trust that the content is traditional, it must be okay. And if the format is a bit novel, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing. But see for yourself whether it really is helpful. It opens the heart, and it's so important. I mean, I could go on and on. I want to wrap this up quickly so we can get to the meditation. But this came up a lot as, as uh, and you pronounce, you pronounce your name as Heidi, right? Not Heidi. Heidi in, in Vin. Good, well, I want to pronounce it correctly. So Heidi. Um, as Heidi will attest from the Cultivating Emotional Balance teacher training, the theme of low self-esteem and self-contempt, self-hatred, lack of self-worth, oi, 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 it came up so many times because it must have been maybe half the people there were psychologists. And they were very concerned with this because it is so utterly endemic. And they wanted to make sure that cultivating emotional balance really dealt with that and didn't aggravate the sense that, oh, I'm not a bodhisattva, I haven't achieved shamatha, oh, I, I have mental afflictions, oh, I really am terrible, you know, no, just an exacerbating a pre-existing problem. And so, especially since, you know, they're right that this, this isu these issues of low self-esteem and so forth are very common in our modern world. Therefore, all the more so, as His Holiness emphasized 20 years ago in a Mind and Life meeting, all the more so that it's very worthy, very worthwhile, meaningful to cultivate loving kindness for ourselves first. And then, of course, don't stop. Extend outwards in all directions. Okay? So we'll have one session, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Okay? So, please find a comfortable position, supine position. Generally, for the four immeasurables, I think you might find it more helpful sitting upright, but not if you're uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, feel free to lie down at any time, and nobody's going to judge you. So if you want to be go supine, go supine. Thank you. You're taking me seriously. I'm glad. Just as people are getting settled in, where but in Thailand would people do this? <laughs> you know, this is a, a little, it's one of these. But they just, it's a, it's a napkin. It's a napkin, but they go out of their way in so many ways to do, just bring little touches of beauty. It's really quite extraordinary. I don't know of any, any other country in the world where to create a little placeholder for a glass, they would say, but how about some beauty too? <laughs> so enjoy. <laughs> They do this commonly with napkins. So when, when I was having dinner at Klaus's home a couple of nights ago, one of his two um, helpers did this beautiful, oh, it was a lotus, it was an opening lotus, and she did that with a napkin. And it was a beautiful thing. And, and uh, Klaus said, oh, well then you have to come up, up with me to our organic farm because we're going to do a photo shoot and I want you to do all the napkins like this, you know, because it's so lovely. So, please. Settle into a comfortable position, and we will begin.
We shall begin each session, though, in the same way, and that is by settling the body, speech, and mind in their natural states, settling the speech by way of settling the respiration in its natural rhythm. So in the same spirit of loving kindness, an act of kindness for yourself, let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Like a fragrance permeating a room, let your awareness fill the space of the body. Set your body at ease in a posture of comfort and relaxation. In stillness and in vigilance. As we shall do so often, we move from coarse to subtle, first settling the body in its natural state, imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance, and then settle the respiration in its natural rhythm, breathing as effortlessly as if you were deep asleep. Settle your mind in its natural state, resting your awareness with a quality of ease, releasing concerns about the past and the future, releasing all hopes and fears, and letting your awareness rest in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations of the breath as they manifest throughout the body. In the modes of shamatha that are emphasized during our retreat, 
the emphasis is on a quiet awareness, non-creative, non-imaginative, resting in a witnessing mode, a quiet and still awareness. So this brings out and highlights the cognitive aspect of consciousness. But the other aspect, the other defining characteristic of consciousness is luminosity, the wellspring of creativity, of imagination. And it's on this aspect of consciousness that we rely as we move now to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. this session, I invite each of you to be a visionary, setting out on four types of vision quest, one could say, each time responding to a question. And here is the first question. What do you envision would bring you true happiness, a sense of complete fulfillment? joy, satisfaction would bring the greatest meaning to your life. In short, what would make you truly happy and envision it? What is your heart's desire? Now I invite you to be bold in the sense of embracing as a working hypothesis the notion that your imagination does not extend beyond your capacity, that in fact you have the potential to realize the highest ideals that you can imagine. I further invite you to symbolically visualize this potential, which in the Buddha Dharma we call Buddha nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. I invite you to symbolically visualize this deepest dimension of your awareness, 
There's a radiant white orb of light, quite small. In the center of your chest, the heart chakra. And imagine this light to be of the nature of loving kindness, of joy, of primordial purity. And as you hold in mind this vision of your own flourishing, the realization of your heart's desire, with each out-breath, arouse this aspiration of loving-kindness, arousing the thought, may I be truly well and happy. Arouse this thought and this yearning with every out-breath, As you breathe out, imagine rays of white light emanating from this orbit of your heart. Permeating every cell of your body, saturating your mind, pervading your whole being with every outbreath. May I be truly well and happy. Letting your imagination play as you breathe out. Imagine experiencing here and now this quality of well-being and fulfillment that is your heart's desire.
in the authentic pursuit of happiness. It is appropriate to yearn for both hedonic well-being as well as genuine happiness. The hedonic being that well-being that we experience by having enough food, clothing, shelter, medical care. These are not unimportant. And genuine happiness derived from the practice of Dharma. But now as you envision your own hedonic and eudaimonic or genuine happiness, consider the fact that none of us can achieve our ideals, experience such well-being entirely on our own without the help of those around us. So now we move to the second question. In order to, for you to realize your own heart's desire, what would you love to receive from the world around you? From those who are near and far, from the inanimate environment, what would you love to receive from the world around you so that you can find the happiness that you most deeply seek? Envision this. are consciously setting out on a spiritual path, a Buddhist path, you may bring to mind not only what you would love to receive from your fellow sentient beings, but also from your spiritual friends, your lamas, from the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. What would you love to receive from the world around you? Now with each in-breath, arouse the yearning and the aspiration. May I receive all that I truly need from the inanimate environment, from my fellow sentient beings, from spiritual mentors and friends, from the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. May I receive all that I truly need to find the happiness, the well-being that I most deeply seek.
with each in-breath, may I receive all that I need from the world to be well and happy. With each in-breath, imagine the kindness, the service of of sentient beings and of the enlightened ones, of the three jewels, all flowing in upon you in the form of light, breathing in, experiencing this light flowing into your body, saturating your body and mind. from breath to breath. Imagine actually receiving all that you need, both in terms of mundane and super-mundane blessings, kindness, assistance. Imagine that you receive all you need from moment to moment, day to day.
in order to find the happiness and fulfillment that has our deepest desire. It's quite clear. It will not be possible to realize this without a profound transformation from within. It's not enough just to receive the kindness of others. So now in the same spirit of loving kindness, raise a third question. In order to realize the happiness that is your heart's desire, from what qualities of behavior, qualities of mind, would you love to be free? And with what qualities would you love to be imbued? How would you love to transform and mature, spiritually evolve as a human being? In short, what kind of a person would you love to become? With each outbreath arouse this spirit of loving kindness, the aspiration may I indeed become the person I'd love to become in order to find genuine happiness. And with each outbreath as you arouse this yearning, imagine light once again flowing from this orb at your heart, radiant white light permeating every aspect of your body and mind, your whole being.
time with each out-breath. Imagine this transformation taking place here and now, not as some distant goal, but imagine it being realized now with every out-breath. Finally, we address the reality that no man is an island, no woman is an island. None of us exists in isolation. We are indeed, whether we like it or not, constantly in influencing the world around us. We are leaving our mark. For the sake of your own fulfillment, Imagine now, what would you most love to offer to the world around you? Drawing on your own unique background, your skills, your abilities, your aspirations. What is the greatest good you can imagine? Offering to those around you, near and far, in the near future and the distant future. In short, what would you love to offer to the world, such that when you come to the end of this life and you look back upon the life that has been led, you'll do so with satisfaction. With no regret. And you can leave this life in peace. What would you love to offer to the world?
and with every outbreath. Imagine rays of light emanated from your heart from this inexhaustible source, flowing out in all directions above and below and to all the sides. And imagine this light taking on the forms of the goods, both tangible and intangible, that you would love to offer to the world. And with each outbreath, arouse the yearning, may we all be well and happy. letting your imagination play. Imagine that you are actually offering such goods here and now. And imagine the joy of those who receive what you have to offer.
as we gradually bring the session to a close, release all appearances to the mind, release all objects, all aspirations. And for just a moment, let your awareness rest in its own nature. Simply being aware of being aware. Well, that's all. Two of the most meaningful phrases I know from Tibetan Buddhism, actually more specifically from the seven-point mind training that traces back to a tisha uh, about a thousand years ago, is in Tibetan, in the beginning and the end, there are two tasks. There are two things to do, beginning and end. I'm sure many of you know what's coming, and that is at the beginning, set your motivation. It's like you're setting out, like you're a navigator, setting out on a long voyage. Well, before you set out to, out to sea, get your bearings. Where are you going? Get your direction right to the most meaningful aspirations you can bring to mind. So setting motivation. One simply cannot overemphasize the importance of this, of bringing the most authentic, the most virtuous motivation one can, even for the simplest of practice, a bit of walking meditation, going off to swim. Why not? Why not have a Bodhisattva motivation to go swimming? Uh, let alone for formal meditative practice and so forth. So at the beginning, the motivation, well, in a, say, in a sense, this practice we just did was all about motivation, right? There it is. Then at the end, there is the dedication of merit, right? And so it's just like the sandwich. The, it's, a, it's a daily sandwich, and the, and the two pieces of bread are the motivation in the beginning, the de dedication of merit at the end. And so once again, this practice, it could be much abbreviated, can also be a very, very, how do you say, meaningful way to bring the day to an end. Coming back to motivation as aspiration, what is this all for? And then at the end of the day, just imagining, what would you love to see come 
from your day's devotion to Dharma. Because that's all we're here for. You didn't come here primarily for the beach. There are a lot of places. Oh, you have really nice beaches in Mexico, right? You don't need to come all the way here, right? And food, oh, you got great food in Mexico, everywhere. Every country has got really good food. And so, and nice accommodation, oh, you don't have to. So we came here for only one reason. So at the end of the day, the whole day really all about simply practicing Dharma, or to put it in a nice vernacular, as one of you did, to become a better person. It's so simple. Then at the end of the day, then directing whatever virtue, benefit, merit, energy there is from that activity to the realization of your most meaningful aspirations. Uh, it's really a celebration. It's ending the day on a, notion, on a note of celebration. So there we go. We've started. There's the first in a sequence of practices for the cultivation of loving kindness. A brief reminder, and that is, um, please do try to show up punctually because it's always a bit distraction, uh, distracting when the door opens and closes while we're already meditating. So let's try to make a point of that. Um, Carissa. My, Carissa is very informally and in a very lightweight way. That is hardly any work at all. She is going to be our internal coordinator. And so if I could ask you uh, to maybe speak with Kun U and see if we can have the clock put... put you already did that. She, she taught on top of it. Great. At least on the outside, if we can have one here as we did during the CEBTT, that would be great. Thank you. You already took care of that. Wonderful. Uh, a, a, a third point, and then I'd like to open this up for discussion. Uh, I think many of you, perhaps even all of you, are aware of the really, frank, frankly, fantastic job that Daniel did during the first retreat, uh, all on his own. I mean, it was just fantastic. I, I can't praise this young man highly enough. He's such a delight having him. This was all done by the youngest member in the whole retreat, right? 17 years old. But he set it all up, all his initiative. I mean, I made the suggestion. He did all the work, and frankly, he did all the work of doing that. And it really, it was a sacrifice because you can imagine all of that work and writing the daily synopses of the morning sessions and the afternoon sessions and all of that and then, and then uploading them and all of that. That took a big bite out of the day. And so he did that entirely on a volunteer basis. I never asked him to do that much work uh, and even creating little photos for each day uh, that he thought would be appropriate and they were so tasteful. And then that just wonderfully youthful enthusiasm that he brought, you know, uh, to his uh, synopses of each of the, the morning afternoon sessions. So frankly, that's too much to ask of any one person, and I do not ask it. And so happily, John and Jessica have, have taken on the role of recording and doing the podcast, just getting it out there. Um, but it really was a ni very nice touch to have the synopses of each of the mornings. They can be more concise than that. But I'd like this not to be a burden for any, anyone. I mean, it was voluntary, voluntary on Dan Daniel's part. He took it with such graciousness the whole time. Um, at the same time, I really, frankly, don't want anybody to take on that much work in the retreat. And so if any of you are moved to do this, I think John and Jessica, already, you have enough to do already, just doing that. And that's a major service already. Uh, but if any of you, even maybe once a week, this is six times, so six, six, six days a week, uh, if there were six people that said, okay, I'll take Monday. If you do this happily, if you'd really like to do it, to write up synopsis, it could be a couple of sentences, it could be a paragraph, it's really exactly what Danielle did. He wrote exactly what he felt like writing. Sometimes it was short, sometimes longer. He came up with the notion of having a special edition on Sunday. It's incredibly charming what he did. Uh, and I'm not, expe I'm not expecting anybody to try to replicate exactly what he did. He did it in a way that is unique to him. And so just let him have his own unique flavor, right? He's an artist. So he did his own art form. Uh, but if there were six people, that would, one would take Monday, one Tuesday, and so forth, that would write up a synopsis, that I think would not be a lot of work for any one person. So if there are six volunteers, 
Maybe you could speak with John. And John, you can raise your hand. There's John and Jessica right here. Let them know. Um, if there were 12 people, one, one just wanted to do Monday morning and the other one Monday afternoon, whatever. But it really would be nice, and I think that's why so many people did check out those podcasts. Number one, he technically set it up so that he Googled it just right and I tuned it just right. He did everything. He, did, he knew all the right moves. Um, but then, of course, he, it, there just really was these wonderful, wonderful synopses he wrote. So if there would be six volunteers, three volunteers, 12 volunteers to take care of that, I think that would be a wonderful service. So that's, I guess that's kind of a request but not pointing a finger to any, any one person, if there are people who'd like to do that. And, and do it only, frankly. Only volunteer if you really would like to do it. Uh, if you wouldn't like to do it, I'd rather have there be no, no synopses, rather than one thing, oh, gosh, Alan said we have to do it, so okay, I'll do it. Better just keep, keep it blank. <laughs> okay, so now a couple of, I've met with six people so far, and so I'm enjoying getting to know you all. I look forward to getting all of you through these individual meetings. And so one, one theme that came up repeatedly, good to share with everybody now, and that is you're, you're, gonna, you're getting into the rhythm of our daily, daily experience here. And so you know what's coming tomorrow. We're going to be focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen, and on we go right through. And we'll do, I can't remember exactly how many, but variations on each of the four immeasurables. Uh, but then the question has been raised, um, well, should each morning session be exactly the method of shamatha you should do for the rest of the day? Each afternoon session, the one of the four measurables, you should do as much as you do the four measurables uh, for each day. And the answer is not necessarily. Some of you have listened to many or even all of the podcasts. Some of you have been in three-month retreat with me already. So, and a lot of you, perhaps even all of you, I don't know, are already quite familiar with maybe all three of the shamatha methods. So that would be really kind of pointless for then you to rein back or pretend you don't have the experience you already have um, and try to put you into a box. Okay, Alan, okay, so it's Friday, it must be, you know, full body awareness. And so what I would suggest is that you get familiar with, you get the taste of each of these, of each of these practices. So you really feel quite comfortable with them, so I'm giving you, what would that be, 10 pairs of shoes, you know, and you get them, so all of them feel comfortable, so by the time we come to the end of the eight weeks, none of those variations of the, of the, mind, of the shamatha or the four measurables will see it feel alien, or what was that about, I didn't quite get it, that all of them will be very familiar, okay? So practice them enough that you're familiar with, you really have the taste of each one of them, all right? But now maybe you've already done a lot of the practice, you already have the taste. Well, then you don't need to, you know, you don't need to get the taste already again, you have it. In which case, for example, uh, if, you're, if you really gravitate to or very strongly drawn to, let's say, settling the mind in its natural state. You've tried out the whole spread, and that's the one that kind of just draws you. If you're like, oh, I think that may be the keeper, that, that may be my primary path to shamatha, then from day one, let that be your primary practice, okay? Now, overall, uh, as a general theme, um, these, these, how do you say, subtler practices, and subtler doesn't necessarily mean better for you, it just means subtler. The subtler practices of settling the mind, awareness of awareness. First of all, settling the mind, that's really famous at this point uh, for stirring, a lot, stirring up a lot of stuff, okay? Emotions, memories, desires, fears, mental afflictions, all kinds of stuff. It's famous for it which means that as you're dredging your psyche through that practice, sometimes it may feel a little bit overwhelming, like, ah, oh, such strong emotions coming up. In which case, 
know that you have a real, a real nice counterpoint to that, and that's going back to the infirmary. Going back to the infirmary tends to really assimilate, mellow out, ground, really balance out the turbulence that can be aroused through settling the mind. The awareness of awareness, may, it's so fine, it's so subtle, that you may on occasion feel a bit wired. You know what that means? Everybody knows? Like a bit, a bit tense, a bit... I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure the native English speakers do, but for those who are, for whom native, uh, English is not your native language, but just feeling a bit tense, a bit hyper. There we go. A bit hyper, wired, tense, fragile, like that. Like that. Again, the infirmary is really good. It's grounding. It's grounding. Okay? So you always have that literally as a fallback. Fall back. Go back into the supine position, ground, earth element, and breathe out, breathe out. Really relax deeply. Okay? So that's going to, frankly, get you through a lot of the turbulence uh, and the stuff that arises, the nyam, the meditative experiences that are aroused through, that, through such practice. So, and now some of you may be relatively new to these practices, in which case, especially this first week or so, I would invite you, or even the first 10 days of, of the guided meditations when we go through the whole cycle, uh, this will be more like a fishing expedition. And the fish you're catching are not sentient beings that you catch on a hook, but fishing expedition to see, well, which of these practices would you really like to focus on? So get a taste of each one, explore them, uh, go ahead and fish around a little bit. Well, maybe I'll try mindfulness of breathing for a couple of days, two or three days, see how that goes. Oh, you know. So fish around, but by, by the second week, second week or so, it would be good if you kind of settled into one, maybe two practices kind of get your bearings, okay, I think this is going to be maybe my primary practice, maybe it's mindfulness of breathing, in which case the fallback is more mindfulness of breathing, maybe just in the infirmary. So maybe you'll be primar primarily practicing here, focusing your attention at the apertures of the nostrils, but if sometimes it gets a bit tight, maybe a little bit of pressure starting to build up in the head, then back to the infirmary, always back to the infirmary. There's one way to mellow out, to assimilate, to get grounded, so Supine position, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing, big emphasis on just releasing the breath and letting go with every out-breath. That's one way. A second way is mindful walking. Going out just for a walk, just going out on the road. Mindful walking, or you could make it more of a formal practice and just walk quietly, very slowly, back and forth, whatever you like. And a third one is just more of an open awareness, kind of just as you're walking, not try to be so mindfully attentive to your feet on the ground and so forth, but just a spaciousness, an expansive, expansiveness of awareness. And that lets that energy that's coming up through the other practices kind of just dissipate into space and get mellowed out, not by grounding, but by just expanding into space. So one of those three, the infirmary, mindful walking, open presence, one of those three is bound to be really helpful. Okay? And of course, the four measurables, that's what they're there for, to really help you balance out the emotions, open the heart, and so it's all, again, the, probably the, the noun that I'll use more than any other in this whole retreat is that of balance, okay? So, anything else come up? We don't have to spend, we're here now, it's 5.30, we have half, another half hour, but if you have comments or questions, any experiences you'd like to share, now's the time. Yes, Patricia, and Patricia, correct? Jolly good, okay. Oh, yes, let's, let's each time have the microphone. We, oh, and here's one other point before you start, and that is it, it can happen, very likely will happen on some occasion for some of you over the next eight weeks, that some issue will come up 
um, that you would really be perfectly happy to have me respond to the whole public, but it's private. It could be about sex. You know, maybe some special desires come up. Well, it's not something you necessarily want to share with everybody. Hi, my name is, and I'm really, I'm really horny, you know? <laughs> <laughs> a bit awkward, right? Uh, at the same time, that might happen, all right? And so if something comes up, now, number one, it could happen to more than one person here. I'm not pointing my fingers in any direction, but uh, it could happen, in which case the response to that could be helpful to more than one person. So if something comes up where you feel, yeah, it would be fine to have the response be to everybody, but frankly, I don't really want my name, you know, sent out, you know, I just like to be private. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in which case, write me a note and don't put your name on it. Just write me a note, whatever it is. It can be as personal, as private as you like. Uh, and then I'll respond to everybody, but I won't even know who it is, so I won't have a slip of the tongue, which happened once uh, in an earlier retreat. <laughs> it was actually, it was a really wonderful experience the person had. It was nothing embarrassing. It was really quite uh, a special experience. And I, I did let, let the, just inadvertently let the person's name slip. But if you don't even put your name on it, then I'm, I'm not in the habit of memorizing right handwriting styles. So your anonymity will be well, well guarded. And then I'll go ahead and respond to everybody, but you know, nobody will be looking at you. So that's another option too. Patricia, what's on your mind? Uh, my question is in regard Good. of... Uh, that, that's much better. Okay. Yep. Of this practice, uh, the, the uh, loving, loving loving kindness. Yes. Mm -hmm. When you... Well, I'll speak of, of myself. I yes. have practiced this, um, this uh, practice, and I have, I have, with my imagination, yeah. going beyond the actual possibilities. I didn't get that last La, uh, Like uh, improving the, the situation, I have going beyond uh, possibilities. Well, well, uh, if I can rephrase that, if I've understood yes. correctly, you've gone beyond the world of actuality and you're venturing into the world of possibility and imagining, imagining it to be so. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So my question is if, uh, if that is actually not possible, I am going kind of uh, naive. I understand, yeah, yeah. This is where wisdom comes in. For example, if I, if I were a very foolish person, more foolish than I actually am, and I'm practicing loving kindness, and I'm thinking, may everyone win the lottery. Well, that's, that actually is not in the realm of possibility. That's not going to happen. If it ever happened, they'd shut down that lottery immediately because they'd go bankrupt. <laughs> so that's kind of a silly wish. It is going into the realm of possibility, but it's a possibility that will never happen. And frankly, why should it? That wouldn't make everybody happy. And so that's a silly desire, right? And so we can imagine things. We can even, we can even wish for things that are unrealistic, that will never happen, in which case, why wish for them? On the other hand, I might aspire, may all sentient beings throughout the world be free of suffering and find a lasting quality of well-being. Well, that may take many, many eons. But from the Buddhist perspective, that's not impossible. Everybody winning the lottery, that's impossible. Every sentient being being free of mental afflictions, all obscurations, and finding perfect enlightenment, that's not impossible, right? So this is where wisdom comes in, uh, to really see that there is, there's, there's a reality base there. And one of the wonderful words in, Tibet, words in Tibetan 
is nangsi. It's one of the many words for the world. So there's samsara, well, there's the, the cycle of existence. There's jikten, which means simply the phenomenal world, the world of experience. Uh, but there's also, and that's jik, so in jikten in Tibetan, loka in Sanskrit, but nangsi is quite interesting. And it's a, wor it's a word that refers to the world, but the word literally means, nang means appearance or phenomena, things that happen, that appear, and si means possible, possible, okay? Tibetans would say, does anybody speak Tibetan here? No? Oh, yes, a little bit. So, di yong sigre, di yong sigre, this could happen, di yong sigre, keran do sigre, it's possible you could go. So, it's a very common word, it means it's possible, it's possible. Nang si, then a world of possibility. It's a world of, the world is a world of possibility. So it's finding, it's attending to those possibilities that are truly meaningful, all right? Is it possible that you could achieve enlightenment, perfect enlightenment? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, yes it is. Has that happened already? Presumably not. But it all, it is, it's simply a matter of the causes and conditions coming together and there it manifests. So this is where the union of wisdom and compassion, wisdom and loving kindness really comes in. And where this cultivation, this vision quest, so to speak, in quest of a vision of genuine happiness, of liberation, of enlightenment, whatever your vision is, that is really imbued with wisdom. So for example, if when we start putting, so I'll show you, I'll give one more example of unwise, unwise, and that is, may I achieve rainbow body uh, in three months. <laughs> well, that's conceivable. It's, I, it's possible in principle. But why did you do that? Because now, I'm, I, as soon as I put a time limit, three months, three years, 30 years, as soon as I say that, then now I'm immediately invited myself into the realm of hope and fear. Oh, I'm not making enough progress. I, I think I'm not going to make it. I'm getting too old. Oh, no. Oh, maybe I will. Oh, I may, oh, 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 I doubt it. You know, that's not helpful, right? And so to simply leave it open. May I achieve great transference rain, rainbow body, the, the quality of, ra of rainbow body that Padmasambhava himself achieved. Go for it, but just leave it wide open, wide open. Now that's reality-based, but as soon as we start, to start putting time limits on it, and I want to achieve it in Phuket, no, I want to achieve it in Lone Pine, I really like Lone Pine. You know, so we start as we put t places and times and that kind of thing, then we've, gone, be, we've become unwise. And so leaving it wide open. And then as we return to this practice, this particular one from this afternoon, as we loop back through it, you know, maybe you'll do it once every 10 days. Maybe you want to do it more frequently. If you don't find it helpful, then forget it. But as we loop back to this bodhicitta, to loving kindness for ourselves, as we loop back, as we are indeed maturing through our practice, then that vision becomes wiser and wiser, right? And more and more benevolent for ourselves and others. So it's really, it's a work in progress. And it makes it quite an adventure, right? So there's no one right answer. So I, I left it, I hope, how do you say, clear enough that it was a real meditation and not just so vague you didn't know what to do. But I didn't want to make it so specific that, okay, here's the right answer. Now here's the next right answer, here's the next right answer. Be a good Buddhist, do this right because there isn't any such thing. So letting it, giving it enough contour that it has some form, but enough fluidity, malleability, that it really has some growing room, okay? So that's that, good.
Anything else? Yes, Darlene. It's not on yet. Yep, there we go. There, okay. Um, I brought a disc with me that uh, is called uh, Radiant Health and Well-Being. Radiant Health and Well-Being? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was a Steve Halpern type of thing. Uh, it's a self-hypnosis well, self type of thing yeah. where it goes into the subconscious. Right. Is it okay if I use that or no? I, w uh, I don't know anything about it, and therefore I would suggest maybe not for these eight weeks. Because what we have with these three modes of shamatha, the four immeasurables, each with different variations, it's a full package. It's a full package. Now, I know that you have a, a solid background in Buddhism, so I spoke with someone else today. Um, I'll leave this a little bit vague, because I, I, I never want to invade anybody's privacy. But this person has been training under a fine teacher in the West, and that teacher's teacher is a very fine lama, and his teacher is an outstanding lama. It's a very authentic tradition. So this person came to me and said, I'd like to augment my practice in these ways in the morning. Here's a practice I'd like to do in the evening. It's coming from this lineage, and would that be okay? Well, I know this lineage. It's a noble lineage. It's a lineage that's given rise to enlightenment many, many times, and so absolutely yes. Uh, Steve Halpin's work, I don't know what his work is, and so that means I don't know it's good, bad, and I have no judgment whatsoever. But this, this dharma that we're dealing with here is so rich and it's so deep that I'd be a little bit hesitant to add something uh, from a tradition that I know nothing about. Because then if, if that's starting to really impinge upon your practice, if it starts really having an impact, it's going to be like I'm a chef here and you're bringing in some ingredients that I don't know any, anything about. And then if you start hallucinating or you start getting super energetic or you start getting sick, I won't know how to guide you because I don't know where these ingredients came from. So that would be my suggestion. Uh, I'm not passing any judgment on that practice at all. Zero. Why should I? Because I don't know anything about it. But I would suggest put it on hold for eight weeks. Yeah, and so therefore, I think our dharma here is so rich and so full, including practices we'll do at the end of the day, you know, and, and then I'll introduce a little bit of teachings on, on lucid dreaming and dream yoga, uh, ways to wake up. And so by the time we have spent eight weeks with the four immeasurables and three modes of shamatha, uh, that's going to be a pretty full package. So that's what I would suggest. If you'd like to experiment with it, I'd wait until after the eight weeks and then try it out then. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Anything else come up? And we don't have to spend, there's no law that we have to, uh, have to stay here until 6 o'clock. If we're finished at, at the beginning, okay, one more, David. First, I want to thank you for a very beautiful uh, meditation. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I have um, noticed, well, when I try to to figure out where I am in hedonic well-being and, sure, sure. and genuine happiness, I, I, I have the impression that I, I cannot ask anything more to the world. Uh -huh. I have everything. I mean, yeah. what a wonderful opportunity we have here. Mm -hmm. If we compare ourselves with yeah. the people who are working here, who yeah. are working under the sun, mm -hmm. and we are going to the swimming pool, eating very yeah. well. So, yeah. so yeah. I could not ask anything else to, mm -hmm. to the world, but still, I don't think that I have genuine happiness. I'm mm -hmm. far from that. Sure. So at the same time, uh, this is very new for me, the Dharma. And uh, I'm not sure if this is my 
the way I, I will find uh, genuine happiness. So at one point in, in, during your meditation, you said that uh, uh, hedonic pleasure is what you get from the world, yes. clothing, etc. Mm -hmm. And genuine happiness is the kind of happiness you get from Dharma. Mm -hmm. So my question is, um, in your opinion, yeah. is there other ways other than Dharma to find genuine happiness? I would kind of define Dharma as, in fact, this is, this is an answer I received long ago, probably 30 years ago. I was with one of my primary teachers, Gijing Awan Taige, and I asked him, and I've been studying for years already, but I just asked him, what's Dharma? I like to always go, I, I like to con con continue looping back to the most basic questions. Uh, and I asked him, what is Dharma? And he said, Dharma is a way of viewing reality, a way of engaging with reality that brings about a lasting and meaningful sense of well-being. So having said that, clearly, Dharma is not equivalent to Buddhism. It never has been, right? In Buddhism, we often speak of, well, there's Hindu Dharma, there's Christian Dharma, and so forth and so on. Um, and so it's not equivalent to Buddhism. It's not equivalent to religion. Uh, Plato certainly taught a lot of Dharma, but we don't call, talk, call it Platonic religion. Aristotle defined eudaimonia in a beautiful way, but we don't say it's religion. That was simply his, defini his philosophic definition of eudaimonia. And so Dharma is not religion. It's not equivalent to philosophy. It is indeed Dharma is a way of viewing reality and a way of engaging with the world, including the cultivation of the mind, that gives rise to genuine happiness. So, in other words, I'm going to take, make, make this tautological. And that is, no, there's no way to genuine happiness apart from Dharma. But does that mean Buddha Dharma is the best for everybody? Absolutely not. Right? Or how about Vajrayana? Or how about Galupa? Or how about Christian? Or Islam? No. How about benevolent humanism? Not for everybody. And so forth. Um, and so to have the mind open to develop a clear and clear vision of what flourishing, genuine happiness, eudaimonia, is comprised of, is really very much part of the path. Um, I would say this, that I cannot, and I'll, I'll speak of it in terms of my own limitations, I can't even imagine truly flourishing, having a, a deeply meaningful, satisfying, fulfilling life, while at the same time being tense, uptight, stressed out, having an agitated, restless, distracted mind, and being dull. I, I, I can't imagine. I think that's impossible. Okay? Maybe I'm just expressing my own imagination deficit disorder, but I don't think so. I don't want any happiness that would be uptight, agitated, and dull. I don't want it. And so, but that's what shamatha is all about. And we are, we're only covering three methods. Are these three methods good for everybody on the planet? No, otherwise it wouldn't have taught 40 of them. The Christians wouldn't have their own methods, and, and the Hindus wouldn't have their own methods. So no, these are three methods that I'm very familiar with. I've translated, taught them, practiced them, and so, and I found them really to be wonderful. But that doesn't mean that they're the best for everybody. They're just the best that I can offer. And so, there we go. That's why shamatha. Now, can I imagine being truly, having tru a sense of genuine happiness, fulfillment, and so forth, but being unloving and rather malevolent, malicious? can't even imagine it. Not compassionate, more inclined to cruelty. I can't imagine it. Um, feeling more envy, en envy and cynicism rather than empathetic joy. I can't imagine that. And feeling truly a sense of well-being, of flourishing, while just being 
you know, having attachment for some people and aversion to others. Oh, I like you, but I don't like you, and, and oh, all you people I don't care about. You've not really helped me much, so I don't care about you. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. So that's where we're starting. Now, have, having said that, does any contemplative tradition in the world have a monopoly on effective methods for developing the sense of ease, stability, and vividness? The answer is no. Christians have excellent methods. They're not practiced nearly as much as they used to be. I wish they'd practice them much more because it's a very rich tradition. But other traditions have them as well. And then we need the four immeasurables right there. They're all there in Hinduism. I think they're not as fully developed as we see in Buddhism, but they are there. And then, even without calling them the four immeasurables, unconditional love, very central to Christianity and Judaism. Uh, compassion is, is strongly emphasized on many occasions in Islam. And of course, you don't have to be religious to emphasize loving kindness, compassion, empathy, and so forth. And so we're starting out on a basis here, very deliberately, very consciously, that I would say, I don't know how anybody could find genuine happiness and not cultivate these qualities of shamatha. And I don't care whether you call them shamatha or not, and not cultivate these qualities of the heart. Now, there are many ways of cultivating them, right? Sometimes more, as you'll recall from the CEBTT, the teacher training, uh, some, some people may find it practically more effective not to be sitting on a meditation cushion and doing the kind of practice we just did or doing the further loving-kindness meditations we'll do, but rather like one friend of mine who's up in northern Thailand. She's been up for years now, years and years. This, she's made this her life. And she's living um, and just has devoted now year after year to help, helping Thai people in, in this remote area who have um, HIV or full-blown AIDS. And she's been just devoting her life to helping these people and their families, bringing in medicines and so forth and so on. It's just 100% philanthropy. And that's the way she's cultivating loving kindness. I don't know how much time she's spending. Now, she is a, she is a Buddhist and she is a meditator. But I strongly suspect she's spending a lot more time actually helping people than she is sitting quietly in meditation. But as you can tell, I think from the way I'm speaking to her, I have only admiration for that. And other people as well. So as the Buddha himself said, there are multiple ways of cultivating loving kindness and so forth. Some more by altering our way of viewing others in active, socially engaged way of life and through our very conduct, through how we are engaging with others. And for some, that will be a more effective way to cultivate immeasurable loving kindness. And for others, it will be more meditative, like some yogis I've known who have spent 20, 30 years in solitude and have come out radiantly loving, compassionate people. And for a lot of us, it's going to be some type of a combination of those two, right? But now how much? For you, will it be 90% here, 10% that? And for shamatha, there are multiple ways of developing shamatha, right? So I would say the core of what we're doing is simply indispensable. So maybe I can be dogmatic now. To find genuine happiness, I think you must, you must develop the sense of ease, stability, and clarity. How can, we, how can you do without those? And the heart must be open. How can you ever flourish with a closed heart? having the opposite of any of the four measurables. So this gives me enormous confidence that the core of what I'm sharing with everyone here is just totally good. And whether one wants to follow a Buddhist path, oh, but that's secondary. That's secondary. Any of the Dalai Lama, really all of my teachers would say, but that's, that's very important, but not for everybody, right? That's secondary. Which path? This path, that path. But what we're starting out on is common ground of great interest to a growing number of scientists, Really keen. I'm just getting inquiries now on a regular basis. Can we come and study in Phuket? We'd like to check out 
in effects of this type for attention, for empathy, for compassion, loving kindness, and so forth. So the scientists, you know, this is really good grist for the mill for scientific inquiry. Philosophers who are really concerned with the human condition and human flourishing, definitely yes. Christians, definitely yes. People who are just humanist, having no religion in particular, why not, you know? And so this is, this is a unifier. We're focusing on themes that only are common ground, they unify, and people with the most wildly divergent worldviews could still come together here. Wildly divergent lifestyles, like this woman who's probably spending 12, 14 hours a day actively helping people and their family, helping those who are grieving, who've just lost one more loved one, and so forth. Very different from what I'm doing, but oh gosh, I have only respect, and I'm so glad there are people doing that, because I feel I'm doing what I can here. So, there's the common ground, and then for your own particular path, that's, that's your great adventure, to find what's good for you, what will really bring your heart's desire, and realize that. Okay? Good. Let's see what this says. Oh, we have some four minutes. Anything else coming up? Carissa, microphone up here, please. Hi. Um, I would love for you to comment on altruism and the definition of altruism and some of the problems. So um, one of the problems a lot of philosophers encounter is that whether, so I'm, I'll, I'll try to be as clear as possible. So imagine that someone does a very good act for someone else and there is nothing that he gains, no, no hedonic yeah. pleasure that he gains from it. Right, right. No money. No, no, no kickback. Right. Uh, but then the question arises whether he's doing it because of the other person's sake of, or because he wants to alleviate his own suffering at watching the other person suffer. Mm, yeah. So some philosophers question the possibility of altruism because of this, not because of the hedonic yeah. benefits. Yeah. yeah Freud, Freud himself was pretty dubious about uh, any genuine loving kindness that was truly for the sake of the other. In fact, he said at one point that all forms of love are just uh, expressions of libido, libido, which, frankly, I think is wrong. But so, and he's a serious thinker. I think he was wrong on quite a number of points, but he was certainly not a trivial thinker. And many very deep minds in philosophy have also grappled with these issues. As soon as you, as you were speaking, what leapt to my mind, almost like just, hi, uh, just dropped right in was Shanta Deva's point, and you'll probably rem remember this from the teacher training we just completed. When Shanta Deva, it's in the eighth, it's in the eighth chapter, the, the, the meditation chapter, which is all about cultivating bodhicitta. And I'll be brief here. He's raising the issue, do I really need to be concerned with, with, the, with the well-being, the suffering of the whole world? Do I really need to take that on? Because it is so, I, I, I can't find the adjective large enough. It's so massive right, the amount of suffering in the world. And he's grappling with this. Couldn't I just more focus on my well-being and, and head for liberation? I'm out of here, yee-haw, and get out of here. You know, just give me a one-way ticket out of samsara, because this really is an ocean of suffering. Uh, and isn't, wouldn't that be okay? Or do I really need to adopt this bodhisattva view, you know, for as long as space remains, that kind of business? And as you recall, I think you probably remember pretty vividly, as he raises this issue, do I really need to be concerned about the suffering of others? And he just kind of tosses it up. And then the response comes back. Yes, you do. You do need to be concerned. And why? 
Do you remember the answer? Because suffering has no owner. Because suffering has no owner. It's not locked in. It's not, it's not isolated in one person like your own private property. You know, Suffering manifests in the world, but it doesn't have sharp contours. It doesn't belong to any one person. It manifests in the world. And this means that the suffering I experience is not isolated within my skin. The suffering you experience is not isolated there. And so because we are our very existence, you as an individual, you're not isolated. There are no absolute boundaries, carissa and non-carissa. There's no such boundary, you know. Conceptual designation, yes. As for I, so for mine. And we, we, we spent a lot of time on that in the CEBTT, right? Do you have a country? I think you do, right? If I should start insulting countries, Argentina sucks, Bolivia sucks, and Germany sucks, Mexico sucks. Whoop, something just happened. <laughs> Wait a minute, Spain sucks. Whoop, <laughs> you know, whoops. Something, you know, there's some connection there. For most of us, we'll have some connection with an ethnic group, with a land, with a people, with a language. Of all the languages, isn't, isn't Spanish the most disgusting? You know? Well, the answer is no, it isn't. But if I said that seriously, it, wouldn't it be a little bit of a, like, wait a minute. <laughs> Bulgarian maybe, but not Spanish, you know? And so, but the issue of where is mine? Where is mine? What is mine? How big is your family? Nuclear family, extended family, fifth cousins, 17, 17 times removed, you know? How big is the family? And so because of all of that, then some questions disappear. Some questions disappear. And that is, if we engage in an act of kindness, and in the back of the mind is, I can engage in an act of kindness for you, for example. I like to be concrete. And I'm thinking, and then, now what will Carissa do for me? Now she owes me. Uh, maybe I can ask her a favor now, because she'll feel indebted. Uh, and I want her to do this for me. That's tainted goods. That's just tainted. It's tainted goods. So yeah, maybe I, you know, I give her something nice, I give her $100, whatever, something trivial. But as soon as there's something, okay, now what can you do for me, then that's not loving kindness. That's just, that's, that's false facsimile business. That I'm doing something, but basically it's an investment. You know, it's like investing in a firm. Now where's my dividends? Where's the profit for me? So that's clearly tainted. But if I should experience you suffering, and my heart is open to that, it's not me over here thinking, oh, you over yonder. I see you over yonder. You have some suffering. I feel kind of, un I feel kind of uncomfortable about your suffering over there. And I don't like feeling uncomfortable, so what can I do to make you stop suffering so that I, I don't feel uncomfortable? That's very contrived. That's not actually how it happens. If we think of a mother's love for a child and the child becomes ill, the mother doesn't think, oh, I'm feeling so bad because you're ill, I'm going to help you so I don't feel bad anymore. I think that'd be very rare. But, it's ni but neither is the child's suffering considered to be something really other, right? So if one feels empathetic sorrow or sadness, discomfort in another suffering, and one simply aspires, Maybe, may we be free of suffering, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, right? And so we don't need to then, some questions kind of vanish, vanish. 
If it's going to be hedonic, then that's definitely, that's tainted. But if it's made simply, may we be free of suffering. And I, say, I have this sense, if there's a lived sense of the entanglement of self and other, right? Then one isn't asking the question, okay, I, I want to alleviate suffering, so I'll be free of my suffering and so forth. It's just interwoven. And we'd really love simply for suffering to be alleviated, period. And it's all a matter of the attention. That's, so I think that's where I'd end. I come back to my mantra. I can't let a whole week go by without my mantra. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. <coughs> and as we're attending to another, with the heart, with the eyes open, the heart open, uh, and we sense, we experience some discomfort, some distress, psychological, physical, whatever it may be. We sense that, but we're attending to the other person. In that close attention, the barrier of subject over here, object over there, tends to get very hazy or simply fade out. And th that person's experience becomes one's reality. Right? In which case now, if I'm moved, now first with the empathy, the empathy arouses an aspiration to alleviate the suffering. The question is, okay, but whose suffering are you trying to alleviate? Over there, over here. It doesn't even arise. Right? Because the reality is has, that which one is attending to has become real. So if one, is, if, if one stays the focus, keeps the focus, that one is really attending to others, right? then all is well. If the focus is, is going on, oh, I just can't stand, I, so now the focus is inverted. Oh, I just noticed that Caris was feeling quite uncomfortable and I'm the teacher here, and I feel quite embarrassed. I feel uncomfortable that one of my, my students is feeling uncomfortable, and I want to be happy with myself as a teacher, that I'm a really good, effective teacher. So, gosh, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I don't like feeling inadequate. See how many times I'm saying I? That I don't want to feel inadequate as a teacher, so, boy, what can I do to help Carissa? So I'll feel more like a... Oh, this sounds like such crap. <laughs> you know, really. And why? Because the attention is all screwy. If you want to be happy, Alan, purify your mind. I don't need to help you to purify my mind. I just have to purify my mind. And I can do that in my room all by myself. Because if I'm feeling distressed, well, that's because my mind is afflicted with afflictions. Right? So the attention. There. That's all. It really gets simple. Okay? Yeah? Good. I wish all, medita I wish all philosophers meditated then I think it would take on much greater depth. And a lot of questions would vanish. Yeah. A lot of new ones would come up as well. Quite so, quite so. At Until least in the West. Indeed, yeah. And that's the nature of the, of the path, that new, new questions arise, new challenges arise, and, and then wisdom arises because of questions. Wisdom doesn't arise because of answers. I can just give you the book of answers, right? And then you'd have a lot of things to memorize, right? And then you'd be, you know, then you'd be a good, good computer with a good, well-filled hard drive. But wisdom comes from questions, really good questions. Yeah. That was very enlightening. Thank you. You're welcome. Good. Oh, it's 6 o'clock. Okay. So, final point. Well, I'm going to go just about two, two minutes more. And that is, we have this practice now. I'm sure, well, I'll just say you probably familiar with it already, but the infirmary, this practice we did in the morning, the shamatha practice in the morning, in the supine position, 
what I'd strongly encourage is today when the whole day is finished and you're sleepy and you're ready to go to bed, that you get into bed and you first of all go into the supine position and even if it's just for five minutes, but let your final session be in bed in the covers in your night clothes, okay? You're really practicing there and, you, and you're not calling this falling asleep, you're calling this shamatha practice, okay? Your final session. Maybe it's going to be three minutes. Maybe it'll be 30 minutes, but what I would encourage you is to engage in the mindfulness of breathing practice, the full body awareness, get your attention out of the head, bring it down more into the torso, down lower, and breathing out, releasing, do just exactly the practice we did in the first session this morning. Do it in the supine position, right? And, and continue doing it until you feel sleepy, right? And when you feel sleepy, then mentally snap your fingers or do whatever, but mentally then call that session to an end. Say, now it's finished. And then roll into whatever posture you like for sleeping and then fall asleep, okay? But practice it until you become drowsy, until you see the, the, the dullness is setting in. But now, frankly, you want to release into the dullness because you need to get a good night's sleep and that's how sleep normally happens. But let your final note be in the in the shamatha, and then as you get into the, into the sleeping position, whatever that may be, on your right side or what have you, then you can spend 30 seconds or a minute finally dedicating the merit of the day, and then you're finished. Then just fall asleep, okay? So that's your homework.